So as I announced last week, this Sunday we're going to be talking on the topic of physical intimacy uh, in marriage. And I had mentioned that we'd set up a table, which is now taken down, um, for the children. Uh, so I guess uh, if, if you're planning on having your children uh, not sit in the service, uh, they can kind of sit towards the back um, uh, if, if that's what you've chosen as, as the leaders of your, of your family. Um, so, now as we get into our sermon, uh, as, I was, as I was planning this whole series on marriage and family, I wanted to be sure that uh, I, would, I would touch on all of the major topics of marriage, and especially on the ones that when broken can cause marriage to be quite difficult, and even can make marriage a form of, of suffering. And so we talked about, uh, in one of the sermons, the roles of a husband and of a wife, which can often be misunderstood or opposed uh, or neglected or even abused. And then last sermon, we talked about the idea of conflict within a marriage, which we all know conflict, when it's there and present, it can really suck the joy out of a marriage uh, that we are meant to have. Uh, especially if we don't know how to properly deal with it. And now, in this sermon, we're going to be talking about what, for many couples, is, is one of the most challenging aspects of marriage, and that is physical intimacy. You see, it's all too common to hear Christian couples speak of physical intimacy in the following ways, and maybe you've said this yourself. I find that we are more like roommates who share a bed than we are romantic lovers. It's been nearly a month since the last time, so I guess we'd better do it. Since the kids came along, it just, it just hasn't been there anymore. I tolerate it because I know it's my duty, but that's all it really feels like, a, a duty. I remember what it was like to be young and in love. Well, it's true what they say. You're either single and lonely or married and bored. And when I hear those things, and they're more common than you might think. It, it genuinely makes me, makes me sad. It makes me sad because comments like this show that, that we are not really experiencing what God has designed physical intimacy to all entail. And so I think it would be a disservice for me as the pastor of this congregation to, to not speak on this topic, even though admittedly uh, it is a little bit awkward. But physical intimacy is a key component of any marriage. And so we want to be thinking about it and practicing it in ways that the Bible tells us to think about it and to practice it according to God's design. Now our culture has become so sexualized and very clearly abused God's gift of intimacy. And so a natural response of some Christians is, is to have a more negative view of physical intimacy. That it's something that we should, we should see as embarrassing or, or inappropriate or even dirty or a little bit shameful. But if that is you this morning, in the sermon I want, to, I want to really challenge you and push back on that type of thinking. You see, God has given us the good gift of physical intimacy. And when we question the goodness of His gift by, by being embarrassed of it or by somehow thinking that it is shameful, we are in a sense questioning the goodness of the giver of that gift. And we certainly don't want to be doing that. 
And so instead, we need to stop being so embarrassed about talking, uh, embarrassed talking about and enjoying physical intimacy, but rather we need to celebrate it in the appropriate ways that God has defined it. Yes, the world does abuse this gift, and it abuses it very often and in some very disgusting ways. But let's not let the world's abuse of it ruin our enjoyment of something that God has given us because, quite frankly, he loves us and he wants us to enjoy it. Now, in this 45-minute sermon, I unfortunately cannot cover everything on this topic, uh, which means there's going to be some important aspects of this conversation that I won't be talking about. For example, I won't be getting into the sensitive topic of sexual sin committed within a marriage. I caught my husband looking at pornography. My wife has committed adultery. There's, there's abuse from past relationships. I have sinful sexual desires coming up from within me. Now, these are all areas where sadly physical intimacy has been thwarted by our sin or by someone else's sin. And when sin enters the equation, things can get messy and aren't quite as straightforward as we like to make them. And so some of what I say today may require you know, slight variations depending on, on your circumstance. And if that is you, I encourage you um, to, to come and to reach out to me so I can help you or I can find someone uh, who can help you uh, walk through the, the challenge of, of sexual sin uh, within marriage. And so I won't be touching on everything under this large umbrella of physical intimacy, but what I do want to look at this morning is two key questions that should really help us answer most of the questions that will arise on this topic. And those two questions are this. First, why did God give marital intimacy? That's the first question. And second, how do we pursue marital intimacy to the glory of God? And so we have this theological question of why, which is going to lead to the practical question of how. And hopefully, by the end of this, you'll leave here with a better understanding of what the Bible says about intimacy and a greater desire to pursue it according to God's beautiful design. Now, normally at Evergreen, we work our way exegetically through one passage at a time, but this morning, I hope you've got your Bibles ready uh, because we're going to be jumping around to try to get a full-orbed answer uh, what, what the Bible says about these questions. And so looking at our first question, why did God give marital intimacy? Is it purely for, for having children? Is it purely for pleasure? Is it, is it purely physical or does it carry some spiritual weight with it? You know, why, why did God give husbands and wives marital intimacy? Well, I'm going to argue that the Bible teaches that there's four main purposes for intimacy. First, intimacy is given to unify. Second, intimacy is given to create godly offspring. Third, intimacy is given to bring pleasure. And fourth, intimacy is given to glorify God. So that's where we're headed this morning. And keep in mind that what I am saying applies to the context of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Physical intimacy is designed to be practiced only within these boundaries and not others. 
Every other form of, of sexual expression is sinful. And it does not bring the glory of God, but rather brings the judgment of God. And so looking now at the four reasons God has given intimacy. First, intimacy is given to unify. Intimacy is given to unify. And you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And we'll look at verses 6 to 9. Mark 10, verses 6 to 9. Let me read this passage. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Now you might be wondering, how does this passage point to the fact that intimacy is given to unify. Let me explain. The context of this passage is the Pharisees are coming up to ask Jesus a question, and they're asking him a question actually about divorce. And in Jesus' answer, he gives us the underlying reason why divorce is always sad, whether or not it's, it's biblically justified or not. And it's always sad Because when two people get married, there is a a very special bond that has formed between them. Jesus says, quoting Genesis chapter 2, that two people come together to form one flesh. There's, There's no longer two. There's now one complete unit. You have this one flesh union that is forming through the covenant of marriage. Now, if you remember in our first sermon on marriage, we talked about The covenant of marriage. If you remember, the the covenant of marriage is when two people promise before God to fulfill their wedding vows to one another. And just as most biblical covenants have a sign that signifies the meaning of the covenant, the covenant of marriage is symbolized usually today uh, by the sign of a ring. So we, we give our spouse a ring as a sign of the covenant that we've made with them. But... I want to offer you you the idea that the actual sign of the covenant of marriage is not a ring, but actually physical intimacy. See, in the covenant of marriage, you have two people through their vows to one another being united together as, as one flesh, and the sign of that union is the physical act of becoming one flesh. Think of it like this. On the wedding night... The covenant which was made by the exchanging of vows is confirmed and becomes official through the act of physical intimacy. We use the term consummation. But that's not all. The covenantal commitment and the one flesh union is then continually renewed by the sign throughout a a marriage as, as a reminder and celebration of the covenant. If it helps, think of it in terms of, of the other covenants of the Bible, specifically the new covenant. In the new covenant, how many signs do you have of the covenant? You have two. You have baptism and you have the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a one-time event at the beginning of new life in Christ and it signifies the commitment that you've made through faith and repentance. And then the Lord's Supper is a sign that continues to be celebrated 
throughout your Christian life as the continual renewal of the commitment and union that you have with Christ. And if I push that a little bit further, you know, in the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we are, we are drawing near to God and we are saying to God, I am still in covenant with you and I recognize that you are still in covenant with me. And in the act of physical intimacy with your spouse, you are drawing near to them and you're saying, I still do. I am still in covenant with you. I still do take you as my bride, my groom, my covenant one flesh partner. Every act of of physical intimacy is a renewal, reminder, and celebration that you are united to your spouse. All right, hopefully I didn't didn't lose you uh, with any of that. The reason reason I mentioned all of that with the covenant and the signs of the covenant was not to confuse you, but to really show you how important physical intimacy is in a marriage. It's the means by which God desires you and your spouse to be bonded, united, committed, and drawn together in the covenant of marriage. So marital intimacy is truly given to, to unify you and your spouse. Now, if this is true, and it is, we cannot then go and reduce physical intimacy down to a purely biological act, like we're some kind of you know, animal on the Discovery Channel. It's an, it is all-encompassing. It, it unites you together with your spouse on a deep and profound level, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, and, and even spiritually. You know, there's a reason that couples don't feel close to one another if they aren't engaging regularly in intimacy. Because what was meant to unify, what God has given to you to unify, is absent. And the broader effects then go and spread to the relational, not just the physical. Intimacy unites soul and body. Now I'm not saying, sorry, now I'm saving a lot of the applications for the second point of our sermon, but I'll, I'll share one right now that I think, and, and because I think it clearly pertains to this point of physical intimacy being important because it unifies. You know, if, if physical intimacy is truly a way of unifying and renewing that commitment that you've made to your spouse, <clears throat> then it's something that should be done regularly. And Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 when he says, uh, to the people in Corinth, they're asking, you know, is it, is it, should we abstain from relations with our spouse? They kind of had this wrong view that maybe the body uh, was, was bad. Anything that brought pleasure to the body was bad. And Paul writes back to them and he says, no, do not. He says, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Because what Paul's saying there is that husbands and wives should not deprive one another unless for the purpose of prayer. Otherwise, Satan is going to use that period of deprivation to try and tear apart what God has joined together through temptation to sexual immorality. Now, the idea of regular can differ from couple to couple depending on certain factors. You know, age, season of life, natural desires. All these are going to affect what, what regular looks like. I know Luther. Luther thinks that twice a week 
was a minimum required if we're going to effectively fight off the devil in our marriages. Um, but it's going to be couple dependent. Essentially, Paul's point is this, and the point that we should take is that neither spouse should be at a point where they're frustrated or, or starved to the point that temptation is going to start setting in. And that's going to that's be differing amounts depending on the couple. So if you're looking for a number, I can't give you a number. Now, if you're thinking about this, you know, as I'm, as I'm talking about this, and you come to realize that, yeah, maybe, maybe physical intimacy in my marriage is, is not you know, as regular as it should be. Or maybe you're even, even struggling in some other way with physical intimacy. Well, don't just ignore that thought. Um, but actually take that as, as a warning sign. You know, irregularity should be taken as a, as a warning sign. First, it should be taken as a warning sign uh, that lack of intimacy is going to have downstream effects throughout the rest of your marriage, but also as a warning sign that maybe the irregularity is because of, of some other problem. You know, problems with intimacy almost always function as a warning light on the dashboard that there's other deeper problems in your marriage. You know, maybe there is some, some serious sin in the relationship that needs to be repented of and dealt with. Maybe there's unrealistic expectations or demands that you're putting upon your spouse. Maybe a, a change of lifestyle is required so that you have more time to enjoy your spouse. And maybe, maybe you are not loving your spouse. You're not doing all the things we talked about with the roles of a husband and a wife. And that's, that's really affecting you coming together for intimacy. There could be a whole slew of problems, but it's usually the case that when physical intimacy becomes irregular or unenjoyable, uh, there is a greater underlying issue, uh, a greater sin uh, that needs to be addressed. And the only way that you're going to figure that out is by, by talking uh, with your spouse about it. And so in summary, that's, that's the first reason that God gave marital intimacy, to, to unify. It's a powerful giving of yourself fully to your spouse as an expression of your committed love you know, an act of sharing, communing, unifying, drawing near and saying to one another those sweet words, I still do. I still do take you as my covenant partner. Now we go on to our second answer. Marital intimacy is given to create godly offspring. And you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. And so here we have the creation account of man. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. So in a previous sermon we talked about, uh, that was titled, the, the Purposes of Marriage. We already talked about having and raising godly children as a purpose of marriage. And so because of that, I'm not going to spend too much time uh, on this purpose of intimacy. If you want a more complete look at that, you can go uh, and listen, <coughs> listen to that sermon. But what I do want you to understand uh, is that very clearly God has given marital intimacy the purpose of having children. 
It's not a coincidence. It's not some extra add-on that children come from the act of physical intimacy. It's integral to it. You know, marriage, physical intimacy, and children all come as a package deal. Now, based on the number of children that I see in this church, you guys are all understanding that quite well, and I'm preaching to the choir. But still, we always need to be careful that the, the views of the world don't start creeping into the church. You know, the world really wants to separate intimacy and procreation, but, but God wants us to question that. In the last sermon I talked about that, that doesn't mean you need a, a bus full, doesn't mean you need 11 brothers uh, like Willie's parents. It, it might mean that, um, but not necessarily. And so we need, to, we need to at least think about these things. Um, I think the Catholics might have been on to something uh, a little bit in that area. So we are, we are called to fill this earth with image bearers uh, who will become worshipers of the true God. And, and God has given physical intimacy as the means of doing that. And so that's the second reason. Now moving on to the third answer. Why did God give marital intimacy? And the answer is intimacy is given to bring pleasure. Now in C.S. Lewis's the Screw Tape Letters, Screw Tape, who is this you know, master, well-trained demon, is, is trying to explain to his young demon nephew, Wormwood, that what he finds the most appalling about God is that God is sincerely out there to make people happy. Now, God has filled this world with, with numerous pleasures for his image bearers to enjoy and to glorify him with. And the demons, therefore, if they're going to combat this, they need to make it their mission to, to get people to either reject or minimize the pleasures that God has given or to lead people to distort the pleasures that God has given away from, from his design and into sin. And I find that with, with this gift of physical intimacy, Christians, because we, we really do not, and for good reason, want to fall into the second trap that's captured many people in the form of, of sexual morality, we can sometimes then lean a little too close to the second trap and minimize the good and, and pleasurable gift of, of physical intimacy. But that is a victory for the devil. You know, physical intimacy is one of those great pleasures that God has given to his people. And we honor God by enjoying it within the confines of a godly marriage. In fact, I personally think that Christians, because we know the giver of the gift, we can enjoy intimacy the most of all. You know, if, if my friend is, is the chef at a restaurant and I go in and he makes me a, a beautifully cooked, rare T-bone steak with mashed potatoes and steamed asparagus on the side, I'm going to appreciate it more than the next guy sitting beside me because I know that my friend made it for me. And he's given this to, to, to me. And the same is true with physical intimacy in marriage. I can, as, as Proverbs 5 says, delight in the wife of my youth and be intoxicated with her love because I know the God who designed it and gave it to me as a gift. And if you're still a little bit skeptical, you should know that there's, there's really a whole book of the Bible that is dedicated to the idea of enjoying intimacy not for bearing children, not for, well, a little bit for unification, but primarily for the gift of, of pleasure. The Song, Song of Solomon. You can actually turn there in your Bibles now to Song of Solomon chapter 7. 
And if you're wondering where it is, it is it's just after Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Right near the middle of your book. <clears throat> now there's much of this chapter uh, and really this whole book that I, that I can't read today because of my promise to be appropriate. And that in itself proves, I think, the point that I'm trying to make. The Bible intends intimacy to be pleasurable, enjoyable, erotic, and an act of joy, communion, and celebration. And we should see it the same way that God sees it. Let me read for you, though, a small portion, uh, Song of Solomon 7, verses 11 to 13, so you can see a little bit of that. This is the bride uh, speaking now to her husband after he's spent um, many chapters complimenting her uh, and enjoying her. She says, Come. My beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all the choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved." And so here you have the invitation of the wife to her husband to come and to enjoy the fruit of the vineyard, to, to take in all that is being offered and to delight in it. And that's the theme of Song of Solomon. There is a, a great euphoria that comes when physical intimacy is pursued within the bounds of covenant marriage. Now that being said, I do want to, to guard against the thought that if you know, if you can't have true fulfillment uh, apart from, that you can't have true fulfillment apart from pleasure that comes through intimacy. You know, sometimes we can have that mindset and, 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 and the drive for pleasure can ultimately become an idol in our lives where, where we think we're going to find ultimate satisfaction in that. But that's not true. It's not true at all. Our ultimate satisfaction is from knowing the true and living God. Now, you have many Men and women in the Bible, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, uh, perhaps the Apostle Paul, Anna, uh, who goes and, and, and goes to the temple every day after she's widowed after seven years. Uh, and of course, Jesus Christ himself, who were never married, who never experienced marital intimacy, and yet they were all satisfied fully in the Lord. Yes, intimacy does bring pleasure, but let's not make it an idol. Uh, of our hearts. And so that's the third point. Intimacy is given to bring pleasure. Now the fourth point. Intimacy is given to glorify God. And this is the most important of all of the four points. Intimacy is given. Actually the other three lead to this. Intimacy is given to glorify God. Romans 11 verse 36 says. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now does physical intimacy fall under the category of all things and whatever you do? Absolutely it does. And so the ultimate purpose of physical intimacy is the glory of God. Now that might cause you to you know, scratch your head a little bit. Really? Love making brings glory to God? 
Yes, it does, when done according to his design. You see, we can have this tendency to think that we can only glorify God in, in spiritual matters. You know, God is glorified in our obedience to his commands. God is glorified in our evangelism. God is glorified in our, our devotional time. But when it comes to you know, physical things, well, well, God doesn't really, he doesn't really care that much. God is spirit. God cares about spiritual things, not the physical. But interestingly, Paul deals with that almost exact type of thinking in his letter to Timothy. You know, there are some false teachers that have, have arisen in the church in Ephesus who had this kind of proto-Gnostic idea that the body is neutral or even bad and that it's only the spirit that matters. And so, as a result, we should reject physical things, especially things that bring physical pleasure if we are to honor God. And here's how Paul responds to that in 1 Timothy 4. Talking about them, he says, They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, God, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. And so essentially, Paul is rejecting the dualism of body and spirit. And he reaffirms that the, the physical is good because it has been given by God. And God is honored when we receive it with thanksgiving. I mean, we need to keep in mind that God has us living with physical bodies in a physical world around surrounded by his his physical creation for a reason to glorify him in the physical things of this world and physical intimacy falls into that category so we should we should see physical intimacy as a means of glorifying our lord now the logical question that follows from this is okay well how you know, how, how can I glorify God with my physical intimacy? And what do you know, that's, that happens to be the second point of our, our sermon. We looked at the theological basis for intimacy. And so now it's time to get into the practicalities. We've seen thus far that, that God gave marital intimacy to unify, to produce godly offspring for pleasure and ultimately for the purpose of glorifying God and so how, how do we do that? How do we do especially that last one? Well, we aren't going to talk about mechanics. You can figure that out on your own. But I do want to give you three attitudes that will help you to pursue marital intimacy to the glory of God in light of the purposes we just talked about. And Lord willing, if you are, are, are willing to commit and conform your mind and actions to these, uh, you are going to experience a greater degree of what God designed intimacy to be and glorifying him in the process. The three attitudes. Attitude number one. Pursuing God-glorifying intimacy involves being other-oriented. Being other-oriented. Glorify God, not by looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Counting them as more significant than ourselves. That's Philippians 2. Uh, verses 3 to 4. God-glorifying intimacy then involves a, a denial of ourselves and a desire to please our spouses. It becomes less about, you know, what can you do for me and more about how can I serve you? 
Intimacy is then uh, completely transformed to be a, a display of the glory of God and really a picture of the gospel where we pursue the advancement of others above ourselves. That's what the gospel is about. Jesus comes and dies on us for the cross, on the cross, so that we might be saved. That we, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we're not, we're not worthy of that. And intimacy can become a real picture of that with your spouse. And so you want to get to a place in your marriage where the greatest pleasure that you get from physical intimacy is the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. That's what it means to be other-oriented. And that's what sets Christian intimacy apart from the world. We're primarily seeking the enjoyment of our spouse. We don't come into the marriage bed with the same passionate lust to, to have our needs and desires be satisfied like the unbeliever does. Now, one practical application of that would be considering what activities your spouse does or, or does not like. I mean, you might not enjoy a particular activity, but if your spouse does, what does other-centeredness look like? And vice versa. You might enjoy an activity, but you know that your, your spouse really doesn't. Well, what does other-centeredness look like? You know, having this attitude is going to make your physical intimacy more enjoyable because you're seeking to please the other, but also more glorifying to God. And so have this attitude of other-centeredness. A second attitude for pursuing God-glorifying intimacy involves a desire to give. A desire to give. And this is related to the previous attitude we talked about, but it's slightly more nuanced. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles unless you want to. Uh, But again, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 4. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, Paul here makes a statement that would have been very radical at that time. He says that a wife has authority over her husband's body. That is, a husband's body does not solely belong to him, but is shared with his wife and vice versa. And that's, that's what comes of a, of a one flesh union of marriage that we talked about. Our bodies belong to our spouse just as much as they belong to us. Now notice that Paul doesn't say, okay, well, since your spouse's body belongs to you, go and take your conjugal rights. I mean, it's yours. Go and take them. No, instead, verse 3, the command that Paul says is, is give. Each one should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And that's significant. You see, flourishing marital intimacy comes not from demanding, but an attitude of giving. And we as spouses want to have this attitude. We want want to freely give and not withhold from our spouse. You know, if your spouse you know, feels like the only time that they can engage in physical intimacy is when they have to get down on their knees and and beg you for it. Well, that's not having an attitude of giving. Likewise, 
You know, if you're not in the mood or, or maybe you're a little bit tired, but you can, you can sense and you can see your spouse's you know, sitting there gnawing on the bedpost ready to go, you, know, you freely give yourself. And you give with the attitude that is joyful. You, know, you, don't, you don't sigh and, and roll your eyes every time <laughs> you accept a request. You know, neither person is fulfilled when intimacy is, is desperately asked for or begrudgingly given. That's not unifying, nor is it glorifying God as it should be. You know, we, we give joyfully. We give joyfully what God has given us to give. Giselle, stop laughing. <clears throat> now for wives, giving to yourself, giving yourself tends to be more of a challenge for wives than it does uh, for husbands. Though I, though I don't want to generalize things. And if, if you do find you know, you're a wife and, and you struggle with the idea of, of being available, of, of giving yourself freely to your husband, maybe it's you know, you've got a boatload of kids and you are just, you are tired. Or maybe there's a decrease in your, your sexual drive with age. Or, or maybe, maybe your husband, he just, you know, he tries, but he just, he doesn't understand. Doesn't understand your body. Uh, or maybe it's past wounds uh, from a previous relationship. Well, if that is you and you're struggling with that, first thing you need to do is, is you need to talk to God about that. Bring that to the Lord. Ask him to, to change your attitude towards your spouse. Ask him to come and to heal the brokenness that is there, which can be healed by the gospel. But then also go, go and talk to your husband about it. And my experience is that, is that most husbands are eager, are eager to, to better understand their wives in this area. You know, they, they want, to, they want to, to love you and they want you to, to enjoy loving them and so go go and talk to them about it and then that's the second attitude we we need to have a desire to give and then a third attitude for pursuing god glorifying marital intimacy is understanding that it takes time and effort takes time and effort physical intimacy takes patience it takes humility it takes perseverance and it takes practice you know no one walks into a kitchen and is immediately a chef it takes time to, to figure out how the spices complement one another. What dishes go best with which sides. Learning you know, how long to cook certain meats and at what temperature. All these things take time to learn. And the same is true for physical intimacy. It takes time to learn. God, is, God has made men and women different. And that's going to take time to discover. And so husbands, especially I think, need to hear this. You know, don't, don't rush into things. You know, slowly study and, and get to know your wife. And also know that it's, it's not only going to take time, but it's also going to take effort if you want to glorify God in this area of your marriage. You, know, you can't just sit back and, and do nothing and expect to become an expert. You know, name one thing in your life where you've just you know, turned it on at the last minute and all of a sudden you're doing a great job. Nothing. Things take, take time and they take effort. And again, for husbands, I think this is especially important. You know, women are not like men. They can't just, like men, flip a switch, catch a glimpse, and be ready to go. You know, for, the majority, <laughs> for the majority of women, you know, that's not the case. You know, physical intimacy uh, for, for a wife at, at 10 p.m. that night begins at 7 a.m. that morning. 
And so I want you to hear this, husbands, this morning. Your wife needs you to, to woo her and to win her throughout the day. You know, go home and, and, and read the Song of Solomon and, and see how Solomon is, is wooing his bride. You know, it's pages and pages of him complimenting, admiring, and cherishing her. And it's not just compliments like, oh, you look nice, or, or thanks, babe, that was a yummy lasagna. No, Solomon gets, he gets creative. And you should be creative in your compliments to your wife throughout the day in order to inflame her passion and to win her heart. You see, your wife wakes up every day and is asking herself, does this man really love me? Does he really care for me? And treating her as, as some husbands do, like, like a co-worker for, for 10 hours of the day so you can have one fun hour at night, doesn't communicate to your wife that, that you love her. You need to pursue your wife. You need to, to write her letters, to, to leave her notes, to surprise her with gifts, you know, to help her around the house with the children, to, to call her just for the sake of, of talking to her, to take her out on dates. You, know, you, need to, you need to make her fall in love with you. You need to touch her heart before you touch her body if you want to glorify God with your physical intimacy. And then also, one last note on that. Do all of these things that, we, that I just listed without expecting something in return. Now, your wife, she's smart. She can determine, you know, if you have ulterior motives. You know, she wants to feel loved and pursued for who she is, not for what she can, she can offer you. And for wives, you need to also put in the effort. One thing that Song of Solomon shows us is that fantasizing throughout the day about your husband is a good way to enhance your, your eagerness for intimacy. Now, as your husband is, is trying to get you in the mood, you can do your part by eagerly anticipating it. Now, he's not, not just looking for willingness from you, but, but eagerness. And then also put in the time and the effort by talking with your husband about intimacy. I'll give you some advice about, about husbands. Your husband desires to be your, your hero. You know, it, it may appear that your husband is, is just caring about his own pleasure, which might be true in, in some cases. But for the most part, Christian husbands want to please you. And, and when he can sense a, a, that enjoyment is lacking or eagerness is lacking, he's going to feel like a failure. You know, many wives will, will keep quiet if, if something is wrong or if their husband's not quite getting it because they don't want to embarrass their husband. But don't keep quiet. Your husband wants to be your special man. And, so, and, and he's looking for your help to do that. And so, so make sure that you're, you're talking to him about it. Now one quick final point of clarification before we finish up. Uh, all of these things hopefully will prove helpful um, but we also need to be realistic and we need to be cautious. If the, if the pursuit is always more and better physical intimacy, you know, that, can, that can really lead to dissatisfaction and, and frustration in your marriage. If we have this idea that, that our intimacy needs to be dynamic all the time, and if it isn't dynamic, well then something is wrong, that mindset's only going to lead you to dissatisfaction and take you down some weird paths. 
Instead, you know, we enjoy the gift of God knowing that we are finite beings with finite capacities when it comes to pleasure. And we are satisfied in that. And we don't need to blow each other's minds every time. As one author said, you don't need a steak dinner every meal to have an enjoyable life of eating. Sometimes craft dinner will do the trick just fine. And so remember, it's, it's how, how do we glorify God in our physical intimacy, not how do we glorify ourselves in this area. And so hopefully, if you start to think about physical intimacy with these three attitudes, or if you already are thinking about it this way, continue to do so. Uh, other-centeredness, a desire to give, and an understanding that it takes time and effort. God is going to be glorified uh, in your marriage. And so the goal of this sermon, and hopefully was accomplished, was to get you thinking about marital intimacy in a biblical way and also to try to, get to, to provide you some better ways in which we could pursue it to God's glory. And part of my hope is that if you are struggling in this area, or even if you're not, that this is going to open up some conversations uh, that you can have with your spouse. You know, if one person is, is struggling or not satisfied with the current state of intimacy in marriage, it's usually the case that the other spouse can feel that as well and that they're not satisfied either. And so talk about it. If you leave with one point of application, it's talk to your spouse about this. Even if the conversation is, what do you think about this? And I think it's going really well so far. Have a conversation with your spouse. And then also keep in mind that physical intimacy is not the end all and be all of life or even of your marriage. There will be no marriage in heaven and there will be no marital intimacy. But there will be far greater glories and and pleasures that these things pointed to and that are going to be awaiting us who are in Christ Jesus when the bride of Christ is presented to the bridegroom in that one final marriage of the Lamb to his church. And so let me pray.